Let's turn again to Matthew 28, passage that's becoming very familiar to us. And just in case you're thinking to yourself, man, we've been in this passage for three weeks. There was a uh, there was a pastor, uh, Lloyd Jones, and uh, he spent I think like eight weeks or eight months or something on the word "and" in Romans. Just the word "and." So count yourself blessed. Well, I'm not going to do that. So, but we've got more that God has, I think, for us from this passage. So let's begin reading. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I love that. What a promise. What a promise. Lord, bless this time in your word. Those of us who are older remember a fiery, prophetic musician named Keith Green. Keith Green, for a number of years back in the 70s and early 80s, beginning of the 80s, was all young people were listening to because he was like this prophet on a keyboard and his songs just had this passion and this strength uh, and this call to live for God, no compromise. And uh, sadly, Keith was uh, taken from the earth along with a number of his children far too young in a plane crash And after he died, his wife, Melody, uh, released a few albums of posthumous songs, songs that he had recorded in the studio but had never been released. And the last such album that she released was an album called Jesus Commands Us to Go. Now, with all due respect to Keith's passion for missions, he got it a little bit wrong. In the passage we just read, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus gives us a command. Only one command. And it's not to go. Though it does sound like it when we read it in the English. The command that Jesus gives, the imperative that Jesus gives, is to make disciples. That's the command. Surrounding this command are three aorist participles, which is a very boring way of saying three action words that describe how we are to make disciples. By going, baptizing, and teaching. This morning I want to spend a few moments on the going and the baptizing and then save the bulk of our time for the last one, teaching. How do we make disciples? Three keys to making disciples that Jesus gives to us. First, by going. Therefore, go and make disciples. Verse 19. It could be read, as you go, or going, 
make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. Wherever you are, wherever you're going, wherever you're living your life, make disciples. Now, I want to point something out from Scripture that maybe we don't think about a lot, but the apostles stood there and heard this word directed right at them, and for them it meant, and some others, like Paul and others, they literally went geographically into all the world. Paul went to Galatia. Peter went to Joppa. And they went to Antioch. And they went throughout Israel to the ends of the earth, Corinth and and other places. And it meant geographically going to places around the world. But I want to point something out. As you go through the New Testament, you don't see every church and every believer just getting up, pulling up roots, and then traveling. They stayed where they are. They, they, this is bad English, they goad where they were, okay? I didn't really like English that well, so they goad where they were. I know that doesn't even sound right, but they somehow were able to obey this without selling their homes, quitting their jobs. Keith Green in his thing said, you know, unless you have a command to stay, you need to go. But that's not what we see in the New Testament. They stayed where they were. They rooted where they were. And, they, and they, yet somehow they obeyed this command. Because going can mean geographically. It can mean going across the world. It can mean going to the other side of the world. It can also mean just going to the other side of the cafe and speaking to someone there or to the other side of the office and talking to a co-worker. Going implies that we go where people are. We don't wait for them to come to us. We go where they are. And that can mean also not only going to where they are geographically, but it can also mean And I think it does mean going to where they are at life, in life. Where are they at? Where is someone at? Where are they at? Entering their lives, where they live emotionally, culturally, spiritually. Going means try to understand and relate to them where they're at. Not where we think they should be, but where are they at? And then building relational bridges to them by caring and entering their lives. Jesus did this all the time. He went from town to town, but you know what else he did? He entered people's lives. I mean, Zacchaeus is sitting up in a tree, and Jesus entered his life. Zacchaeus, come on down. I need to have dinner at your house today. How many of you would be prepared for someone to say, I I need to have dinner at your house today? That's what he said. Zacchaeus was blown away. His whole life was radically changed by Jesus inviting himself over for dinner. But that's not what it is. Jesus entered his life and says, I see you. I care about you. I accept you. And Zacchaeus was a man that most people did not accept. Jesus entered the life of the Samaritan woman, drawing out her life. But in a way where she didn't feel condemned, she felt like, She ran home to her people and she said, you've got to hear this guy. He tells me everything I've ever done. Or Matthew, sitting in a tax collector booth and Jesus said, hey, Matthew, come follow me. 
Jesus entered people's lives. We make disciples first by going, Jesus says. Going. Going where people are at. If they're hurting, we enter their pain with an empathy and a compassion and try to help them. Jesus did that all the time. If they're skeptical, you ever meet someone who's skeptical? I don't believe in God. I don't believe in... Try to find out what fuels their skepticism. How about those who are hostile towards Christians? They don't like Christians. They don't like church. And you know, our natural reaction might be to say, well then, tough on you. But how about we ask, why? Why this anger? Why are you hostile towards Christians? Did did you get hurt somewhere? Did something happen? Try to enter their lives where they're at and understand where they're at. We enter their lives and their world in order to, with the goal and the prayer and the hope to introduce Jesus to them. But I think sometimes we miss where people are at because we just kind of, and I've done this so many times, we just kind of unload the gospel to them in a one-size-fits-all. We just kind of tell them or lecture or tell them, and, and we're not finding out first where are they at? Where is their life at? So that Jesus can, through us, meet them where they're at. And by the way, questions are a good way. I want to encourage you if, you know, first of all, we all need to, I think, I shouldn't say that because maybe you're a great one for sharing your faith. But I think most of us, amen, need to share our faith more than we do. Amen? One of the ways, and and I used to walk up to people cold turkey and just just kind of say weird things. Um, You know, I mean, like kind of drop, you know, Jesus has changed my life and he can change your life too. But I don't even know where their life's at. That's fine. God can certainly use that. But I'm, I'm, I'm learning that questions first help you draw out where they're at. You know, what? do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? And then listen to their answer. Where are you at in your spiritual journey? Um, you say you're done with the church. Is there some reason why that? Is that, uh, is that, you know, did something happen? Did you have a bad experience that brought you to that place? Hear where they're at, and then from there, you can introduce Jesus into that situation as we get a sense of where they're at. So Jesus says, go. But... Again, I think for most believers, that does not mean sell your home, quit your job, and and go across the world. Some people that does, but most I think not. The second thing Jesus says is baptize. The second key to making disciples is baptizing. Again, in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a beautiful sacrament that professes a person's union with Christ in his death going under and in his resurrection coming up. So it's a, it's a, it's a sacrament, it's a symbol, it symbolizes union with Christ in his death and his resurrection, but there's something else that's super important about baptism. It is a public confession of our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It is a public confession of that faith. So we aren't saved by being baptized, but Jesus says it is an important step 
of obedience to him and making disciples. The Christian faith is both and at the same time a private matter and a public matter. Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's public, and believe in your heart, that's private, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, that's private, and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, that's public, and is saved. So it's both a private matter, it's got to be in our hearts, and a public matter, it's got to be on our mouths. In cultures that are hostile to Christianity, baptism is often viewed as the the line of the passing the line of no return, the point of no return. Because it is a public confession of faith in Christ. And so if your if your culture or your faith believes that is worthy to be put to death or to be cut off from your family, it's often not when someone just says it privately but when they say it publicly in baptism, where historically that has been when persecution has occurred. Because it's such a beautiful public confession of our faith and our union with Christ. So I wanted to say, if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you, determine in your heart to get baptized and let us know you'd like to be baptized. Because it is an important, important confession of our faith so those so going baptizing but i want to spend most of our time on the third one teaching verse 20 jesus says teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you i want you to notice jesus doesn't say teaching them to know everything i have commanded you he says teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The goal of discipleship isn't that we know a lot of doctrine or a lot of the Bible. The goal of discipleship is that we obey what Jesus commanded. Remember, I think in the first message I shared from Romans chapter 8 and other passages, the goal of discipleship is to make us like Jesus, to make us more like Jesus. That's the goal of discipleship, that we become more like Jesus. Knowing what Jesus commanded is meant to lead us to obeying what Jesus commanded us. Now, I want to just say, when we start hearing about and talking about obeying and obedience, it might raise concerns about legalism, And certainly, there are churches that are stressing obedience to a certain set of requirements in order to be accepted by God. I want to underline this because legalism is something that not only do do many churches find themselves vulnerable to, but I've met many Christians who have found themselves in a place where legalism has done a real number 
on their souls. Legalism is in, it comes in so many shapes and sizes, but it's basically trying to get God to accept us by what we do. <clears throat> and there's whole cultures, church cultures, you got to do this. You got to read your Bible an hour a day. You got to pray for a half hour a day. You got to go to church every Sunday. You got to have this. You got to do that. You got to, you can't do this. And, and so these things are the things that are stressed that make us right with God and acceptable to God. And so typically, I want to point something out. Typically, legalistic churches come up with a requirement. Now, those requirements look different from church to church. But typically, they are, they are requirements. They are boxes that can be ticked. That's British. All right? I love that saying. You know, tick the boxes. Your hair's not too long for guys. Check. Your hem's not too short for the ladies. Check. You read your Bible every day. Check. You don't go to R-rated movies. Check. And you've got these boxes and you tick off the boxes and so on. And the lists vary from church to church. If you've been in a church, you may have a whole different set of lists. Don't listen to rock music. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't hang out with people who do that. Don't drink alcohol. Don't, don't whatever. And you got these lists. But listen, <clears throat> typically the lists are things that we can do in our own strength and that we can measure quite easily. can measure these things. And so the legalist can become proud because he's ticking all the boxes and he can look down on the person who's not ticking all the boxes. Here's the problem with that. Typically, churches do not have boxes to tick that look like this. Love one another. Serve others. Don't judge others uncharitably. Walk in humility. Do your righteousness in secret and don't seek the applause of men. Show compassion to the hurting and mercy to the fallen. Each of these are, by the way, from Jesus' teachings. And they are not easily ticked. When do you tick the box? Love one another. You never get to that point where you take because you're always trying to live it. When were you in a church that where that was like, okay, we've got this, tick the box. A legalistic church, that's not where they're going. That's not where they're going. These have more to do with heart and lifestyle than they do black and white goals we can achieve. And yet I submit to you, it's these latter things that make us more like Jesus. Making disciples isn't primarily done in a classroom. It's, it's done in life. It's done in life. Jesus didn't open up a seminar. He opened up a life. They walked with him, talked with him. They saw him eat, drink, laugh, joke, minister, love, heal, rebuke. And teach some more. 
And as we live side by side one another, which is one reason why we're encouraging this summer fellowship to, like, let's, because this can't really happen in just Sunday mornings. We need to get to know each other on a a more uh, intimate basis of friendship and fellowship. And it's as we live side by side and we invite believers that we trust into our lives that helps us to grow and as people invite us into their lives we can then help them to grow I have a a good friend years ago who brought me into his struggle with his anger towards his children Uh, he opened that part of his life up to me Um, Because he knew his anger, especially when it bordered on rage, was not Christ-like and it wasn't loving. And so he wanted to intentionally bring me into that part of his life. And so we talked together and we prayed together. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm not sure that anything I said helped him in any particular big way. But you know what I think did help him? was being open and vulnerable to be able to share his heart, to be open open that part up. The desire to change and his willingness to be vulnerable and open his life up, I think it's humility, and God gives grace to the humble. And so God met him with grace to change because he wanted to obey Jesus in that. Now, I can say now his children are grown, all his children are grown adults, and I can tell you very confidently, they have so much love and respect for their dad. Because when they think of him, they don't think of his anger, they think of his desire to be like Jesus. If there's an area in your life where you're struggling, I want to encourage you. Open that part of your life up, but I want to encourage you to a brother or sister that you can really trust, that they're not going to judge you, they're not going to gossip against you, they're not going to use it against you in some way. Because opening up to that kind of situation can do you more damage than good, by far. But a friend, and they don't have to be an expert, They don't have to be, you know, a Bible scholar. Just praying with you and encouraging you in ways can have a real difference in our lives and encourage us to change, which is encouraging us to obey Jesus in all that he commanded. Not just hear it, but do it. The goal isn't rules. And I want to say this, and this might sound a little kind, it's also not getting to know a lot of Bible. It's not. The goal is to become like Jesus. I want to touch on something just very briefly because it's in the news. And this could probably be an entire message, and I certainly don't have it all thought out. But there's a lot in the news today about uh, scandals going on in the church. Some of you may have read, maybe most of you have read, about the uh, Southern Baptist Church that just had a devastating report released about how they covered over abuse for years and decades. 
And by covering over the abuse for decades, they enabled pastors to continue victimizing people or congregant members to continue to victimize people. When I read some of that, saw also in the news another story. Front page news having to do with a pastor, and uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but 20-some years ago with a young girl, I thought, I'm going to Google a particular church and pastor that I respect. I respect his teaching. I respect um, all that I've ever heard about the church. I Googled it. Now that, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I read about mass resignations from his staff, pastors and other people in the staff. Now, mass resignations because of a toxic environment of leadership. Now, this is way too big a topic to get into and bore down too deeply into it. But here is a very simple thought I have. I can't help but think these churches have gone off and some of these things allowed to continue when they clearly are against the Scripture and the heart of Scripture because they have focused on having right doctrine, which is important, but have lost sight of that doctrine making them more like Jesus. Because that's the goal. It's not knowing a lot of Bible. It's not even being able to teach the Bible really well. Because it's not the Bible that changes our lives. You say, whoa, whoa. James says there are people who look at the Bible and hear it and walk away and it has no effect on their lives because they're hearers only. It's not hearing the Bible that changes our lives. It's doing what we hear. It's applying it that changes our lives. Jesus doesn't say teaching them to know everything I've commanded. He says teaching them to obey everything. I've commanded. So there are churches that get legalistic. There are churches that set up rules. But I also want to say, in all fairness to the culture and the climate in the church today, there are also churches that are going to the other extreme where the highest goal is to discover yourself and to be who you are and to do you the way you want to do it. And, and Jesus is you're told is right there with you whatever is your self-expression and whatever forget you know morality forget the bible commandments of this and forget that whatever you're into jesus is right there cheering you on because in that case rather than bowing the knee to jesus They've created a Jesus who accommodates us. The Bible isn't the highest authority. My personal opinion and view is the highest authority. And where Scripture agrees with that, I accept it. And where it doesn't, 
I toss it out one way or another. It reminds me of the spiritual dysfunctional days of the book of Judges. If you ever read through the book of Judges, you just read about such messed up lives. And the theme of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a spiritually corrupt and evil time. The Christian, the true Christian, has a king. It's Jesus. It's not us. It's not my opinions, my preferences, my thoughts. It's Jesus. And we are to bow our knee to Jesus. And that's what obedience means. Obeying Jesus flows from a loving relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Obedience is to flow from relationship. You see, if we love Jesus, we want to obey him. We want to obey him. And we're not going to do that perfectly, amen? And we're going to fail. We're going to fall. And that's not negativity, that's just reality. And the scripture tells us that too. But we want to obey him because we love him. And when we fail and when we fall, we then obey Jesus by coming to him and asking for forgiveness and cleansing of our sin. Jesus said we are to make disciples by teaching them to obey all that he commanded us. And I want to close with one command that Jesus brought exalted above all others. And it's a command we must never, ever forget. Jesus said, this is the work of God. This is the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? Is it to feed the poor? No. That is a work of God. But Jesus said, this is the work of God, to believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work. That is the prime obedience we are to yield our hearts to, to believe in Jesus. We obey Jesus' teachings. The first step of that is to believe that Jesus and Jesus alone saves us. To believe in all that he accomplished. When I look at God and I think about his acceptance, I don't think about my obedience. I think of Jesus' obedience. His obedience to go all the way to the cross for my sin. That's the obedience upon which my salvation is built. Not my obedience. We are saved by faith in Christ. Obedience is a result of our being saved, not the reason for our being saved. But even in that, faith in Christ, there can be a danger of legalism. Because the question can come to mind, do I have enough? Is my faith strong enough to save me? 
You see how that question turns our attention back on ourselves? And all of a sudden, we're now, even in the area of faith, we're looking back on ourselves. Do I have enough faith? Turns our eyes away from Christ and towards ourselves. I appreciate this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, True faith takes its character and quality from its object. Its strength, therefore, depends on the character of Christ, even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. Even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. You might struggle with weak faith. You might struggle with weak faith. You might struggle with doubts. Remember a couple weeks ago. I know at times I do. But we have a strong Christ. If your faith is weak, turn it towards Christ. Just turn it towards Christ. Turn that weak faith towards Christ and say, I'm believing in him because he is a strong Christ. He is a strong Savior. If your grip on him is weak, remember that his grip on you is strong. We have a strong Christ who saves us by His power, His grace, and His obedience. So be encouraged. Be careful not to turn your faith on yourself or your eyes on yourself. How am I doing? Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your faith pointed towards Christ. Keep all your hope, all your efforts, everything you do always upon Christ. Christ, for he alone is our Savior, and he's a strong Savior. Let's pray together. And if there's anyone that you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to urge you not to put it off. Not to put it off. We are literally one breath away, one breath, one beating heart, one heartbeat away from eternity. And we don't know when that will happen. But Christ came. He lived. He loved. He gave his life on the cross. And he rose again in order to save all those. Everyone. Every single person who will believe in him. So I urge you not to put it off. But to believe and trust. Put all your faith in Christ to save you. For he is a strong Christ. For those who are believers, we leave here with these ringing in our hearts. That we are to go where people are. We are to go where people are. You you have reached that the person sitting next to you doesn't have. So go and and seek to be and understand where people's lives are at. and, And enter with the love of Christ. We want to bring people to a confession, a public confession of faith in Christ, which I think is a little bit more of a church thing than an individual thing of baptism. And then we want to teach, but we also want to live obedience to what Jesus commands us with the goal of becoming more like Jesus. We can't do this on our own, so let's pray.
Father, we, we declare that we can't do this. And yet you call us to do it. So you must give us grace to do it. Father, work in our hearts and then work through us to help others come to know the beautiful, powerful, saving work of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be lights in a dark world. Help us not to throw our hands up in despair. Help us not to just say, oh Lord, get me out of here. But use our lives to make a difference for the glory of God. Lord, we pray that you will turn hearts to saving faith in Christ and help us wherever we go to make disciples. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. And Lord, I pray this week you will just work in right in here in this room or those who are watching online that Father, you will work in our hearts that we will go after a deeper discipleship and faith in Christ. And Lord, if that means opening up some part of our life where we're really struggling, help us to find a trustworthy brother, a trustworthy sister that we can do that with. We don't want to stay where we are. We want to move on. We want to grow. We thank you. We bless you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, have a great week. Enjoy the beautiful weather. You are God's missionary wherever your life has lived. Be that missionary. Be that ambassador for Christ. God bless you guys.